Uh, good afternoon and welcome. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a policy analyst uh, here at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. I'm delighted that you could join us today. Uh, before going further, can I please ask you to, uh, to switch off your cell phones in case you haven't done so already? Um, Cato Institute is, uh, as many of you know, dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Uh, Cato has been devoted to those principles in the 1980s when uh, it criticized the minority government in South Africa for denying basic rights to black South Africans. And we have been critical um, of the majority government in the 2000s when it fell short of the promises it made to all South Africans. For years, it was the established wisdom that South Africa under the ANC was doing just fine, increasing corruption, decline in the delivery of public services, out-of-control crime, and falling education standards were generally ignored. South Africa's foreign policy, including its support for the regimes of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe and uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, have been condemned by Michael Gerson of Washington Post as that of a rogue democracy. And who can forget Thabo Mbeki's denial of the link between HIV and AIDS. The ANC has been in power for 19 years, and with each passing year, the government's commitment to tackling South Africa's challenges sounds less and less credible. Then, in October of 2012, the ultimate voice of the establishment has had enough. Under a dramatic headline that read, Cry the Beloved Country, the economist wrote that while not totally responsible for South Africa's problems, the ANC's incompetence and outright corruption are the main causes of South Africa's sad decline, unquote. The purpose of this forum is not to revisit the last two decades in detail. Rather, it is to look to the future. What will be the response of the ANC to the collapsing international support and rising domestic dissatisfaction? Will it remain intact? Will it face serious challenges at the next election, and if so, what will the response of the ANC be to electoral challenge? Will it try to hang on to power, like its ideological cousin in Zimbabwe, ZANU-PF, or will it cede the political space to different political parties? Well, to help us understand where South Africa is heading, I am uh, delighted to welcome two people who are immensely qualified to talk about South Africa. The first speaker today will be John Kane Berman, who is the chief executive of South Africa's Institute of Race Relations and had been so since 1983. South African Institute of Race Relations is one of the country's classically liberal think tanks and research houses. It was established in 1929 to oppose apartheid and promote goodwill across color line through analytical research, advocacy, and public education. The Institute is known for its forthright public commentary on all issues that it monitors. Its core objective, following the, uh, following the advent of democracy in 1994, is to promote South Africa's success as an open, free, and prosperous society based on principles of private enterprise and liberal democracy. John Kane Berman was um, educated at St. John's, John's College in Johannesburg, University of the Witwatersrand, and Oxford University. He uh, was the chairman of the Progressive Party Youth Branch in the Houghton 
constituency, which was for many years uh, represented in South African Parliament by Helen Sussman. He was the president of uh, Students' Representative Council at the University of Dvartisrand, and he was also the senior assistant editor of the Financial Mail. Please help me welcome John Kane Berman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Your Excellency Ambassador Rasool, ladies and gentlemen, when The Economist, as uh, Marion Tupi mentioned a few moments ago in October last year, published its cover story on South Africa's downward slide, few people in the country made much attempt to gainsay it, probably because many realized that there was truth in what the magazine said. The shooting by the police of 34 platinum miners at Marikana two months before that was, in a sense, a calamity waiting to happen. And growing violence on the part of the police had indeed led my institute to publish a study thereof a full 18 months before the incident at Marikana. Now, one of the things that the shootings at Marikana did was prompt the international rating agencies, three of them in fact, further to downgrade South Africa's creditworthiness. Referring to frequent, often violent, demonstrations across the country, some of those agencies warned that South Africa might now be facing an Arab Spring. And in fact, Muletsi Mbeki, brother of the former president, who's now in business, issued the same warning a couple of years before that. Now, these demonstrations are usually called service delivery protests. And that reflects a widely held view that the African National Congress, that's the ANC, has failed to fulfill the promise that it made and has repeated ever since it came to power in 1994 of what it calls a better life for all. In fact, however, service delivery protests have been one of the ANC's great successes. And some of the highlights that can be mentioned briefly are more than three million houses have been provided, half of them free, since it came to power in 1994. More than half black households in the country now own the homes in which they live, and those homes in more than half of those cases have in fact been fully paid off, against only 43% in the case of white homeowners. The proportion of households with electricity has risen from half to three quarters. The proportion with free basic water has risen from 60% to 85%. The number of children receiving monthly state grants has grown from 800,000 to almost 12 million. The proportion of children paying no school fees whatsoever has increased from zero to 61%. The proportion of people living on less than $2 a day, the World Bank or one of the World Bank measures of poverty, has declined from 16% to 3%. And finally, new HIV infections have dropped from 1,770 a day to half that, 
partly thanks to the fact that the state is now distributing more than a million condoms each and every day of the year. So we have here a paradox of more state delivery, successful state delivery, but more dissatisfaction. One reason is that even rapid state housing provision cannot keep pace with demand, so that the number of households living in self-erected shacks has also increased. Another possible reason is that many of the state-provided houses are so badly built as to be beyond repair. And a third possible reason is that many local municipal councillors are so corrupt and incompetent that much of the protest is actually against them. But despite all that, the ANC, as I've pointed out with some of these figures, has made substantial progress with restribution, redistribution, and redress. The organization's single biggest failure is on the jobs front. Since it came to power, unemployment has doubled from 3.7 to 7.6 million. And that gives an unemployment rate of more than 36%. Among young black women, the unemployment rate is a tragically high 64%. Two-thirds of the unemployed have been jobless for more than a year, which means that their chances of ever getting a job are pretty well zero, so that millions of young people are in fact growing up without a great deal that they can hope for. Now, very few analysts make the connection, but it seems to us at the Institute that much of the localized instability, these so-called service delivery protests, <coughs> may in fact be the result not of failed service delivery so much as of high youth unemployment, which is now routinely described, it's almost become a cliche, as a ticking time bomb. The government plans to generate 11 million new jobs by 2030 via a comprehensive national development plan, which was adopted by the government a couple of years ago, but endorsed by the ANC itself at its conference at Mangaung at the end of last year. If you analyze this extremely long and complicated document, it's mainly a wish list, and it is in any event contradicted by all sorts of other policies that I will outline in due course. Among those, perhaps most prominent, is labor market policy. Labor in South Africa is costly, it is strike-prone, and it is heavily protected by legislation. So it's not surprising that we rank way down at 143rd place out of 144 for labor market efficiency on the Global Competitive Index, which is published every year by the World Economic Forum. Another problem is poor education. On the quality of maths and science education, we also rank 143rd out of 144. Our rankings, I should point out, are not always that bad. For auditing standards and for regulation of the securities exchange, that's the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, we are in fact number one on the list. But the fundamental problem is that the ruling party 
and its allies in the South African Communist Party and the Congress of South African Trade Unions, known by its acronym COSATU, remain committed to bringing about what they call a National Democratic Revolution, or NDR for short. This was adopted as policy by the Communist Party in exile in 1962, and it was adopted by the ANC also in exile at the time in 1969. Well, that was quite a long time ago. But the point is that since then, the NDR has been regularly readopted, most recently at both the National Policy Conference and the National Elective Conference of the ANC last year in Midrand and at Mangaung, known or previously known as Bloemfontein. Pages have stuck together. It's okay. Now, the NDR, the National Democratic Revolution, has four key components. One, economic. That means radical redistribution of wealth, income, and land. Two, racial. That entails the use of affirmative action, racial preferencing, if you like, to make all centers of power, as they are called, racially representative. Three, the political component. That means deployment of party cadres or cadres to take control of all these centers of power, whether in the private or the public sector. And fourth, number four, ideological. That involves winning the so-called battle of ideas against ultra-leftism on the one hand and neoliberalism on the other. Now, strategy and tactics documents, as they are termed, which are adopted by the ANC from time to time, show that the implementation of the National Democratic Revolution is not expected to be linear, but pragmatic, and in particular, subject to the balance of forces, as they are termed, that might prevail at any given time. Critical and highly topical in this context is the view that the Constitution, under which the ANC came to power in 1994, was not set in stone, but was merely a tactical compromise to be revisited when the balance of forces had shifted. For example, it was recognized right from the start that immediate seizure of the means of production when the ANC came to power would have caused major problems for the organization as it was being watched very closely both in the country but more important around the world and it was trying to establish itself as a responsible government. For that reason, the question of property rights was quite deliberately left on the back burner to be revisited when the time was ripe. That time appears to have arrived, for legislation is now proposed to limit the size of commercial farms. Any acreage in excess of what the state thinks is the appropriate size for a commercial farm is liable to be surrendered to the state at a fair and reasonable and equitable price 
to be determined by the state. This will supposedly make more land available for redistribution to blacks to rectify the injustices of apartheid legislation which limited their land ownership and acquisition rights dating back to 1913. Now many people poo-poo dismiss the National Democratic Revolution. It has nevertheless progressed quite far. And it is also the single best explanation for many of the things that have gone wrong in the country. It helps you, if you like, to connect the dots. A key component of the National Democratic Revolution is the use of the Soviet model of government, in terms of which the party is superior to the state. The previous president of the country, Tabern Becky, tried to cement policy control in the presidency, and he did that partly to reduce the influence of the left. But this was one of the factors that led to his downfall and replacement as party leader by Jacob Zuma in 2007. Under Mr. Zuma, the supremacy of the party has been largely re-established. The deployment of party cadres to key jobs in the public service, in government agencies, and in state-owned enterprises has also been pretty well established. Another feature of our, of our governmental system is that the principle of what's called democratic centralism applies to elected institutions. Governors, we call them premiers, of our nine provinces and the mayors of most major cities and in some cases also minor towns are in practice appointed by President Zuma, except of course in a few instances where opposition parties are in control such as Cape Town. Further centralization is underway with plans now for employees of local government to be taken over by central government. So there'll be a unified civil service all under the control of the central government. This top-down model has three major consequences. The first is lack of downward accountability, which undermines democracy. The second is widespread systemic corruption, since the party very often thinks that it owns the state. The third is systemic incompetence, as in many, many instances, public servants are appointed not on merit, but because of party loyalty. Incompetence is further fostered by the application of racial targets in the context of enormous skills deficits among blacks, which are, of course, in part the result of the apartheid education system. A further implication of the National Democratic Revolution, or the NDR, is increasing regulation by the state. A legal practice bill, for example, which is now in the pipeline, seeks to replace long-standing self-regulation of the legal profession by a statutory body that the Minister of Justice will be able to dissolve at will. The assets privately owned at the moment of the bar councils and law societies across the country will be appropriated by the state. Plans for tighter control of the non-governmental sector are also in the pipeline. 
Universities will now also be subject to stricter control by the Minister of Higher Education. He happens to be a prominent member of the Communist Party, and he says that higher institutions are critically important to the ANC's strategy of winning what it calls the battle of ideas. With regard to the economy, it's not clear how far the African National Congress wishes to go. At one stage, the idea was the classical one that the socialist revolution would follow the nationalist one, and this, to be honest, cannot yet be ruled out. For the moment, however, policy appears to be to harness the private sector to the needs of the planned developmental state envisaged in that national development plan. Legislation empowering the government to impose mineral beneficiation quotas and prices, plus export controls, has thus been tabled. So have provisions for the government to control trading in listed mining shares. Although the ANC has formally abandoned, as you well know, wholesale nationalization of mines, it did that formally at the conference in Mangawung at the end of last year, it still plans to impose what it calls strategic state ownership. Uncertainty, therefore, continues to plague the mining industry. We've recently again slipped down the Fraser Index to 64th place out of 96, reflecting our declining attractiveness as a magnet for mining investment. And given, ladies and gentlemen, that South Africa is a treasure house of minerals worth $2.6 trillion at current prices, this is nothing short of tragic. Uncertainty plagues the private sector in general. So it is sitting on a huge cash pile worth somewhere between 500 and 750 billion rand that it is loath to invest. Foreign investment is likely to be deterred by proposals to override some 15 bilateral investment treaties with various European countries on the grounds that they constrain the government's regulatory and expropriation powers. Foreign direct investment is also likely to be deterred by tougher black economic empowerment, that's BEE requirements, that will remove the exemption that foreign-owned companies up till now have enjoyed that they don't have to make over a portion of their equity to, to local black companies. That exemption for foreign multinationals is going to be removed. Now, although the National Development Plan envisages a friendlier investment climate, it is contradicted both by the ideology of the National Democratic Revolution and by ministers bent on more and more state control, among them the Minister of Trade and Industry, a long-standing and very intelligent member of the Communist Party. Now, when I mention this point to audiences in South Africa, I'm invariably accused of seeing reds under the bed. But the problem is that our reds are actually not under the bed. Quite a number of them are in key cabinet portfolios, another being agriculture, forestry, and fisheries. The upshot of all of this, well, GDP growth has doubled from an annual average of 1.6% 
in the last 18 years of apartheid rule to an average of 3.3%, almost double, in the first 18 years of ANC rule. But we are nowhere near the 5.4% average that the National Development Plan deems necessary to reduce unemployment to 6% by the year 2030, which is the next 18 years. The combined effect, ladies and gentlemen, of crippling skill shortages, an overambitious and extended state, cater deployment, lack of accountability, and affirmative action is that the government is simultaneously both powerful and weak. Billions have to be spent on consultants, as they are called, to do the work that public servants cannot. The country is struggling to cope with major infrastructural backlogs in roads, rail, ports, hospitals, schools, and not least important electric power stations. Dozens of local authorities do not have the skills to spend even half their capital budgets. Many, even in major cities, don't have a single engineer or accountant on their staff. The appointment of unqualified people for reasons of race or political loyalty to manage public hospitals has helped cause the deaths of several thousand mothers and newborn babies. So where do we go from here? Cato's invitation quotes me as suggesting we could follow in Zimbabwe's footsteps. Now, when Robert Mugabe started to organize his land invasions some 12 years ago and to use violence against his political opponents, he was, in fact, fated by the ANC. And this was one of the factors that prompted my colleagues at the Institute and myself to voice the fear that South Africa may go down that same route. In our case, we said, it would be an incremental decline rather than calamitous events, for example, breaking farms up rather than arranging for them to be invaded. It would also, we thought, comprise increasing lawlessness on the part of the state and its security wing, plus, at the same time, slow strangulation of the economy. But paradoxically, perhaps, although we are now further down that road than when Mr. Mugabe started his land invasions, I think we are now less likely to follow a Zimbabwe route. And there are three reasons for a more optimistic view, cautious though that must be. One is that the contradictory policies being pursued by the ANC are quite simply unsustainable. The second is that countervailing forces are growing. And the third is that the climate for putting alternative ideas on the table is riper than at any time since 1994. Let's start with the contradictions. The ANC thinks that it can run a modern economy, fix local government, build infrastructure, feed a growing population, combat crime, tackle poverty and inequality, finance a welfare state, create jobs and generate electricity, and it thinks it can do all of this without fixing black public education at school level, without fully exploiting the skills of the white population, without liberalizing immigration law, without professionalizing the civil service, and without making the country friendlier for business. 
simply impossible. And they will no more succeed in doing all of these things than the apartheid government succeeded in running an economy that was based on racial exclusion. Apartheid disintegrated. It disintegrated. It crumbled as the contradictions played themselves out. And very much the same sort of process is now going to happen with the ideology of the National Democratic Revolution. Let's take an example or two. You can declare war against rape, as Mr. Zuma very recently did yet again, because of recent horrors that have put rape back onto the front pages. But you can't actually combat rape as long as the police force is subject to cater deployment, political appointments, and affirmative action. You can announce, as Trevor Manuel, the chief planning minister, recently did, a dramatic shake-up of the public service so as to build what he calls a capable state. But you can't actually build such a state as long as the public service is also subject to cater deployment and affirmative action, and as long as its primary objective is seen not as service to the public, but as promoting the national democratic revolution. Now, these contradictions are helping to strengthen the countervailing forces. The complacency so prevalent in South Africa post-1994 is disappearing, sometimes quite literally, Vigilance is on the march as the country experiences a reawakening of the civil society that played a role, an important role, in the ending of apartheid, but which has until now been part of the complacency problem. When the government fails to deliver textbooks to black schools, it now finds itself in court. The media and black intellectuals have become increasingly critical. Black intellectuals are, in general, far more critical of the ANC government than white intellectuals, many of whom are still plagued by guilt. That the pervasiveness of corruption is known to us is thanks in very large part to never-ending leaks to the press by officials who are eager to expose it. They are, in fact, leaking so much detail about corruption to the press that the government is now trying via legislation to put clamps upon them and to put clamps upon the media. It can, of course, try to do that, and for a time it may succeed. But the ANC knows very well from the campaign it waged against the apartheid government that ultimately power rests not on draconian legislation but on legitimacy. And the problem that the ANC faces is that its legitimacy, its legitimacy is on the wane. Some of its most trenchant critics are within its own ranks. Among them, a one-time ANC intelligence minister who only last week or the week before denounced what he called, quote, the sinister growth of security powers and the culture of police brutality. Fully a quarter of the police budget is now set aside for expected civil lawsuits against the police. Many cadres deployed as local councillors are under violent attack. Many women are likely to be alienated by legislation, putting them under the authority of traditional leaders. The Legal Practice Bill will alienate much of the legal profession. Now, some of the countervailing forces 
are beginning to win victories. Plans for a media tribunal have been shelved. Plans to put the courts under the control of the Minister of Justice have likewise been shelved. There are also early plans of retreat from the CADA deployment policy that is so essential to the party's grip on the state. The health minister, for example, recently announced the appointment of 100 healthcare professionals as chief executives to run public hospitals in place of the party apparatchiks that have until now been destroying those institutions. At the same time, the power of the ANC's most important ally, which is the trade union movement, is being challenged on the shop floor and at the mine shaft by rival unions, part of the reason for the confrontation at Marikana. The Secretary General of the ANC, Wedem Antashe, recently complained that the organization was under siege from its critics, and it certainly seems to be running a bit scared. At the end of last year, for example, the ANC, despite its two-thirds majority in Parliament, refused to allow the tabling of a vote of no confidence in President Zuma. He had no chance of losing such a vote, but the party seemed to be worried that enough of its normally obedient MPs would stay away and so, in a sense, hand him a hollow victory with less than a two-thirds majority. Now, there's little chance that opposition parties will unseat even a deeply divided ANC at the general election in 2014, or probably even the one following that in 2019. But the ANC's support is also on the way. It commands two-thirds of parliament, but its share of the total eligible vote has dropped from 54% in 1994 to 39%, in 2009. There are now more people staying away from the polls than are supporting the ANC. The vote of the official opposition, on the other hand, has risen from less than 2% to 10%. Now, until now, the ANC has had an easy run. Tax revenues have grown sufficiently to finance the government's growing welfare commitments, but taxes are now starting to fall short of budget, leading to larger deficits. And the problems that the fiscus is now facing, in fact, present an opportunity because the finance minister is now reiterating almost in every speech he makes that job creation depends no longer on the state but on private sector investment. But he's not going to unlock those billions of sums waiting on corporate balance sheets until he has convinced his president, his colleagues in the cabinet, and his party to overcome their antipathy to business. Now, all this suggests that the ANC is now more vulnerable to alternative ideas being put forward to the National Democratic Revolution ideas that have held sway until now. There is a very large constituency in South Africa for defense of the Constitution and the rule of law. We don't have to worry too much about that. But there are only a handful of organizations and of public commentators that recognize the critical importance 
of economic freedom. And that is going to be the next great frontier, the next great battle. And it means a number of things. Critical among them, the removal of barriers to market entry by all those unemployed, and the removal also of the red tape that is hampering all business, but crippling as far as small business is concerned. So there is a battle of ideas to be fought, as the Minister of Higher Education, Bladen Zimandi, quite rightly recognizes. And that means not only a battle to expose the contradictions in the current package of policies, but also in ensuring that the alternatives, the classically liberal alternatives, are injected into the public debate. And that is precisely what happened with apartheid. Because when that policy crumbled, it did not leave a vacuum. Nor was the post-apartheid constitution drawn up in a vacuum. It was built very largely on solid ideas about the rule of law, about human rights, constitutional sovereignty, and the separation of powers that were familiar right across the South African political spectrum. And they were familiar because a great deal of energy had gone into promoting them. And exactly the same needs to happen now with alternatives to the National Democratic Revolution and the similar policies currently being pursued. What are those alternatives? They include professionalizing the civil service by scrapping cadre deployment. They also include decentralizing government and shrinking the state to do only the essentials. All state-owned companies would have to be put up for auction and private schooling and healthcare would have to be extended rather than reduced, which is the current policy thrust. Labor law would go and racial preferencing laws, black economic empowerment and affirmative action would also go in favor of colorblind policies which are aimed at correcting current rather than historical disadvantage. You get the picture. That may sound pretty fanciful and absurdly idealistic in the present context. At this stage, that doesn't matter. Because the point in conclusion, really, is that most people in South Africa cannot yet conceive of an alternative to the ANC's policy thrust. So the challenge is to hold out alternative ideas, and it is my conviction and that of my colleagues that those ideas are going to become more and more attractive, also within the ANC as the contradictions play out and the ANC's policies fail and are seen to have failed. The ANC, as I've pointed out, has repeatedly voiced the fear that it's losing the battle of ideas. Now, one of the key objectives of my institute is to make sure that they do lose it. It's going to be a long haul, but we are more confident of success now than at any time since 1994. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul, who is the South Africa's ambassador to the United States of America. Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador, for joining us and for stepping, so to speak, in the lion's den. 
before uh, the ambassador joined the embassy, uh, his most recent positions have included uh, membership of the South African Parliament, and um, he was also a special advisor to uh, the state president and uh, the and premier or governor of Western Cape mm. Province. Uh, Ibrahim Rasul has a history of involvement in uh, anti-apartheid struggle, starting at high school and including the leadership of the United Democratic Front and the African National Congress. Uh, he spent some time in prison and also under arrest for his activities. He has built up extensive experience in government, having led various departments like health, welfare, finance, economic development, and also the premiership of Western Cape. Ambassador Rasul is a prolific speaker on a range of topics covering politics, governance, religion, Islamic and cultural themes across the world. He has received Bachelor of Arts and Higher Diploma in Education from the University of Cape Town. Please help me welcome Ambassador Rasul. Thank you very much um, to the Cato Institute for setting up a discussion like this. Thank you very much for Professor Kane Berman for speaking candidly and in speaking candidly, um, I think that the issue emerges whether I am ambassador or a cadre. And, um, and I think that but speaking largely to an American audience, I think that we need to find a way between the warning bells that I think that Professor Kane Berman rings and some of the issues which have allowed South Africa not only to be invited into the alliance of emerging market countries like BRICS, who will converge in South Africa in the next two weeks in order to discuss how the emerging markets are able to get greater coherence and be able to leverage of each other's strengths and enter into partnerships, not simply with each other, but into partnerships with the developed part of the world. And I think that we all deal in one way or the other with our historical problems, some self-made, some imposed, and in the common search for solutions, I think we need largely to hold each other's hands as we, as we move forward. I think that we live in a world that has never been more uncertain. And sitting in Washington, one can see a lot of smoke and mirrors in the city. One can see a lot of sophisticated arguments, but it does not hide the fundamental uncertainty that was at the heart of the election campaign, even in a country like the United States of America, and that I think um, permeates um, throughout the world. I want to, to say that um, maybe if one extrapolates away from South Africa and one were to look at the growing influence of emerging markets in the world, and one looks at the fact that the BRICS countries amongst them have 43% of the world's population, have 40% of the world's capital reserves, and own about 15% um, of the world's economy, then maybe we're not simply dealing with those who are aberrations of the usual, 
but those who may themselves be grappling with alternatives to the usual. And I think that what Professor Kane Berman presents is how to get South Africa back to the fundamentals as espoused by the cathedrals of, of capitalism. And certainly I think that South Africa discovered very soon after Nelson Mandela emerged from prison that the world had fundamentally changed and that we needed to change ideologically, politically, economically, most importantly. And so in our desire to change, we now encounter a world in which capitalism itself is asking fundamental questions of itself. And therefore in our collective response to this crisis after 2008, what we all debate is whether we return to that which existed pre-2008 or whether we all search for a dispensation post-2008 that can make the world a far more sustainable place and a less unequal place. It would be really good to simply close the door on South Africa's history prior to 1994. The difficulty is that our transition from apartheid to democracy occurred within a global transition from a two-polar world to a unipolar world, from a world that had multiple centers to a world that had suddenly begun its process of globalizing. We ceded much of our sovereignty and we shed much of our ideological precepts that went into that. And that, I think, was the anatomy of a change in South Africa that I think much of the world applauded and produced icons that surprised many people uh, as South Africa made its transition. In that transition, given the reality of the world that we were living in, we then understood that many of the things that we would have wanted to achieve needed to be postponed. And so while we embraced the political kingdom, we put on the back burner, for example, land reform. We stand in the year 2013, 100 years after the 1913 Land Act, and we've not been able to significantly begin even a process of redress on the land issues. And so when we speak about um, finding formulas for better redistribution of land, then it is in the context that we are doing that 100 years after the dispossession of the land. So how do we manage that? And th those are also alternatives that we, that we require um, in a country like South Africa. So this transition that I think that we are busy with um, in South Africa is one in which 19 years later, we ask ourselves the question, how long can the political kingdom sustain um, what needs to happen? It would be really good if the service delivery protests were simply an anger at the government. It would be manageable if the voices that are growing are simply because the ANC is losing um, electoral support. It would be really manageable if the discontent um, in the mines, on the farms, were simply expressions of people beginning to see through the ANC's contradictions in its policy. I think 
that while the ANC may have drawn the fire to itself for having been in government, that the it does not alter the fundamentals that people are speaking about, the fact that we have a fundamentally unequal society, but more importantly, that that inequality is color-coded. And more important, that on the wrong side of that color is a majority and not a minority who could be sorted out in a, in, in, in a, in a, in a very simple way. So those are fundamental challenges. They could be ideological debates, the Minister of Higher Education may say certain things about it, and that would personalize the matter quite a lot. The Minister of this, who is a leading member of that party, may wish certain things, and that would make the matter ideological, and then we can dispense with the need to actually get to how do we solve the fundamental problem in South Africa. The fact that we have postponed a economic Delivery to people. How do we do that? We've gone through all the things, the market values that we have placed on land in order for the state to purchase that land and in order to then give it back. And all of those things. Those, I think, are the key challenges that we face. How do we overcome? Had it simply been incompetence in the education system, of which there is much, but had that incompetence simply been incompetence, one could solve it. But when it is systemic, when you wait for 16 years to produce the first generation of teachers to teach what is needed to be taught in an education system, then you're dealing with a systemic problem if you are only at year 19. So we can't airbrush that entire history out of it. Now, the danger you face when you raise this is that you are then accused of blaming apartheid as if apartheid simply ended and had no consequences into the future. And having sat on top of the Western Cape government and having to try and do some of those things for four years, I think we are dealing with really, really intractable problems. Let's take the thing that has hit the headlines in South Africa, the culture of the police in dealing with certain of the issues there. We inherited fundamentally a police system that was politically orientated. It was aimed at the security of the state. It had no compulsion to investigate matters. It could beat a confession out of you. And suddenly, when we had a constitution that was based on the rule of law, that was fundamentally based on human rights, torture, and confession-based court cases, suddenly had to be put on the back burner. That same police is then required to suddenly begin to deal with a plethora of crimes that exist within that community without the requisite skills, without the requisite detective training. And we've done really wonderful with the help of the FBI, Scotland Yard, to establish um, detective academies in order to deal with some of those matters. And I think that those then are the issues which continue to, to be with us. So I would, I would say that the degree of intractability of some of those matters are the issues that we need to, um, to, 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 to also um, be able to focus on. I think within a matter like that, the 
government of South Africa has two fundamental paths. How do you bite the bullet and establish a path to the future and make sacrifices along the way? I think that that was the experience of, for example, the growth, employment, and redistribution strategy in which, in very kind of diligent ways, there was an attempt to say, let's get a monetary policy, let's get a macroeconomic policy, let's design under that a microeconomic policy, an industrial strategy, and let's do the hard yards, let's cut down on certain of the expenditures, um, and so forth. Within that, what you, the holes that you open up in your society, such as the ones that give rise to crime profiles, then come onto the agenda very forcefully. And suddenly, there's a whole movement to fight crime. Then you quickly rush to employ 150,000 new police. And when you try to do that within two, three years, you don't always get the most competent people coming in. It's not that they deployed there. That's what you get when you recruit on the rush to get visible policing. So we must weigh up the temptation on the one hand to pluck short-term gaps, and on the other hand to stay on a sustainable future path. And that, I think, is where the adoption of the NDP, the National Development Plan, hopefully begins to give the kind of certainty set the beacon at the end and keep a disciplined movement towards such a, um, such a set of, of goals and not be unduly um, ruffled by the short-term gaps which emerge. I think the same thing happens with regard to policy choices on how much decentralization um, you can do. I think that we've gone a route, not a federal route though, We've gone a route of decentralizing um, to local municipalities. The difficulty is that the lower you go, the more you decentralize, the more you need people who can run every aspect of a municipality. You still have most of your more competent people at the national level. And so how do you find a balance between decentralizing too quickly and reaching levels of incompetence, and how much more do you rely on centralizing in order, I think, to manage a more coherent um, outlay of, 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 of government activity, government resources, and government policy. And I think that rather than simply a set of incompetent choices being made, I think it's policy choices that you've got to weigh up at any given time, and each choice has its lobby. Each choice has its NGOs. Each choice has its non-profit. Each choice has its lobby group. And we need a government that is fairly impervious. I think that to a large extent what has helped the ANC to make long-term decisions um, in South Africa have really been the fact that it had comfort at the ballot box. I think the USA would love to have the kind of reduction in voter turnout that um, that the ANC has, if by the definition that was speaking about legitimacy um, of the ANC government, if you were to then use that same yardstick to measure how many people, what percentage voted in the US election, I think that that legitimacy 
yardstick would be a very um, punishing one um, for a country like the United States. I think the ANC um, and the South Africa as a whole still gets fairly large um, voter turnout, and I suspect that for some, any decline in it, any decline in it would, um, would be seen as, as encouraging, whereas I think that um, we need to, 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 to ensure that there is enough room at the ballot to continue to make good long-term decisions. I think in much the same way that in America we distinguish between the sound and fury of politics and the real running of a government, I think South Africa has its own share of what is sound and fury and what is, what is governance. I think for me it's encouraging that one has a judiciary that is sometimes really nicely being called an activist judiciary. I think that that institution is solid. I think we have, as Professor Kane Berman has said, a media that is relentless in its pursuit. And I think that that's the strength of the democracy that we have. I think that we have NGOs who are vigilant and active. And I think that that speaks rather of strength than of subtraction from the democratic um, foundations of a country like South Africa. And so, so I think that um, South Africa really <clears throat> is a country where all of this takes place with enormous vigilance, enormous debates, and that the opposition can come together in parliament <coughs> to even think of putting a vote of no confidence in a president who's not a member of parliament. And I think that that's where some of the theoretical debate comes in. We have a president who's not a member of parliament and not necessarily subject um, to that same rigor. So whether it is, um, but the fact that the opposition is active, that the opposition does their work, I think speaks of a strong basis for multi-party politics in the country. To end, I think that we are undergoing in South Africa, a change in the nature of the economy itself. When we came into power, casualization of labor was a major feature. Mechanization on the farms became a major feature and seasonality of farm workers became a major feature. The nature of the South African economy changed. Mining, despite being very strong, represents today 2% of our income in our country and has become increasingly mechanized and no longer the army of mine workers that is absorbed into the mining sector. So we can put it all down to a set of policy choices, but I suspect that that is giving far too much power to a single party and a single government. I think what we need to be able to understand is how do we separate out um, what is within the power of a state and what is the changing nature of the global economies and how we respond um, to it. I think that, um, that, that those are just a few of the, of, the, of the key issues that I thought needed to be um, responded to and it would be, um, it would be absolutely critical that, um, that we see South Africa as 19 years old. That some of the processes that I think are happening in the country are not simply a question about whether the ANC is right and wrong. I think it would be ominous 
if the underlying question in all of that was whether people still have faith in the compact that was reached in 1994, whether the idea of postponing the economic kingdom and running only with the, with the political kingdom, whether that idea is still sustainable, whether we have that the ANC, more than managing all the economies and the government, that the ANC needs to manage the popular discontent. And the key challenge to the ANC is how not to be populist in the face of people who, in the centenary celebration, um, commemoration of the 1913 Land Act, say we want all our land now. How does the ANC not remain populist or become populist? That how does the ANC not become populist by saying, in the face of this global economy that is changing, let's do short-term interventions rather than stay on a macroeconomic path that is sustainable. That, I think, is the bigger challenge um, in a country like South Africa. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Ambassador. By trying to be equitable, I have, uh, I have, uh, we are running a little bit late, uh, but, uh, it, which is why we are not going to have another round of comments from the, each of you. But rather, if you have anything to say in response to one another, please uh, put it inside your answer or make it a part of the answers to the questions from, uh, from, from the audience. Um, are there any questions from the audience? And if there are, please wait to be called on. Uh, the microphone will come to you. Yes, sir. And if you could please announce your name and your affiliation and make your question in a, in a form of a question. Yes, Howard Marks, uh, K Street Alternative Energy Strategies. Uh, this is a question. I worked at the U.S. Department of Agriculture for four years as the Associate Administrator of the Office of International Cooperation and Development. At the time I was there, South Africa was considered the breadbasket of the African continent. A tremendous uh, productivity in what you call maize, what we call corn production animal agriculture, uh, very productive, very good farming technology. So my question is, why would you want to tinker with a system that historically has worked where food security is the number one issue in the world, both here in the US and in, in the third world, developing economies? Uh, I'm very, very, very confused about what the, uh, Mr. Ambassador, what the government is proposing. Are, are you going to be um, at all, uh, uh, changing that system, which has served your country so well? If you want, you can just... Yeah. I think the issue in South Africa is far more that nothing has changed for the last 19 years, other than the natural forces of a market in a protected economy, um, under apartheid, in a highly subsidized economy under apartheid. I think we had all the performances that you are speaking about. I think since then, where that same system had to fend it for itself in a global market, I think that that's where we saw some of those um, changes begin to, to take place. We've had nothing significant by way of land reform. If anything, um, our target for land reform is 15% of the land. We are not even at 10%. Um, of the land. Those farmers who have come in have not gone and turned their farms into collectives and um, kibbutzim or anything um, like that. I think it's simply, um, and many of them have not had the kind of wherewithal um, to incide and implement, I think, to make 
them as successful. I think that's where the pressure now comes in. And, um, and, and, and that's why I'm saying that one could ascribe a certain thing to perniciousness, pernicious policies and so forth. But I think that when you see the paradigm of a transition within a transition, it begins to make one understand that, um, that, that, that certainly um, when we, within the broader global transition, I think South Africa has had to contend with changes um, within its production base. Yes, Dan. I'm Dan O'Flaherty with the National Foreign Trade Council. Uh, Ambassador Asul has painted uh, you know, a picture of the ANC as being a bulwark against uh, populism and, and, and maintaining a centrist position. And Professor Kane Berman has indicated that the ANC is increasingly uh, corrupt and, and um, uh, statist and, and, and not necessarily a, a bastion uh, against uh, um, extreme ideas. My question is, since politics for the moment takes place within the ANC, um, could you expand on the, you said that there's a con basic conflict in the ANC. Uh, how do you see that playing out? What is the role of pragmatists in the ANC, such as, I suppose, Ramaphosa uh, and Trevor Manuel, who are well known here? If you like. I think, Dan, that the role of pragmatists within the ANC is to fight some of these battles within the party. I don't think that uh, the kinds of ideas that were put forward by Provident Gordon, and they're not new, in his budget speech last week or the week before, those ideas cannot be implemented unless he fights a battle within his party. He, for example, in that budget speech, reiterated for the umpteenth time from either the president or the finance minister, it dates back to 1994, in fact, the need to deregulate small business because small business is seen quite rightly as a major generator of jobs. Now, at the same time, more and more restrictions are being imposed on small business, with one exception that the that the threshold at which they're liable for tax has been put up in that budget speech from 14, I think, to 20 million rand. Now, unless Mr. Gordon can convince the Minister of Trade and Industry to start lifting the restrictions on small business, one of his key objectives as finance minister is not going to be achieved. That's just one, one example. There are one can look at the, the labor scene. The, uh, there are people within the cabinet that recognize that as long as we have our present labor relations system, we can't deal with unemployment because it's absurdly restrictive. It prices unskilled people out of the labor market. Now, the labor minister is coming with 52% uh, decreed increases in minimum wages in agriculture, for example, which is enough to destroy uh, potential job growth in the agricultural sector. So there are enormous divisions within government, within the ANC itself, on critical economic issues. And part of the battle needs to be fought within the cabinet, within the structures of the party. Institutions in civil society, the intelligentsia, the press, 
can all be part of those battles because it's a free society in terms of the exchange of ideas. We know, for example, in the Institute, uh, from our discussions with a whole lot of people in the Department of Trade and Industry, that the critique which we alone have issued since the enactment of the black economic empowerment legislation, that it cannot be improved and should be scrapped in its entirety, that there are a growing number of people, senior people within the Department of Trade and Industry that share that view. They will never say so in public. They will say so in front only of a handful of colleagues that they can trust. So there is ferment. There are people within government that recognize the need for reform and the role of organizations such as my own is to strengthen them by supplying them with arguments that they can use against their colleagues. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, Lawrence Freeman from the Africa desk of ER Magazine. I think there is a case to be made that in the last four years, since 2000, 2007 or eight, we've seen a, a failure of the financial global system. And I think that we're continuing to see that with the bailing out of the banks by both the European and US banking system, which could actually make things worse through hyperinflation. So there is a need, if you're gonna depend on the free market, you're gonna lose. And that's why you see this effort for Glass-Steagall banking reform from states, from government, from the private sector. <coughs> Given that's the case, uh, there is a role for the state in South Africa. There is a role for the state in every country to provide not only regulation, but impetus for development. And without that, I don't think, if South Africa goes to strict privatization and so-called freedom of the marketplace, you'll have more riots by poor people in South Africa. So I wanted to ask the ambassador, what are the programs, if there are any, for the, the government of South Africa to actually stimulate, or stimulate's a bad word in this country, to actually ensure that there is infrastructure, there is jobs, there is creation of actual growth in the economy without simply relying on what I think is, is a failed, flawed financial system at this point. I think that um, a businessman, economist, um, Michael Power, used a very great um, metaphor for describing how the South African economy operates. He says that both government and the captains of industry have learned how to play the violin. To make great economic music, it needs a steady left hand and a creative right hand. I think it's the balance between playing the violin in that nature um, that I think is what we are searching for um, in South Africa. I don't think that there's a desire by the private sector to play the violin on its own. And I don't think that there's a desire by the government to play the violin only with its left hand. I think we understand the mutual interdependence and it's a lesson that I think that in the US people are beginning to, um, to, to, to learn. How do you play that violin? I think that we are on the cusp of massive infrastructure development. I don't think that we have a private sector capable of putting up the money for it, but the economy needs it, Africa needs it, and the state certainly has to stimulate it. I think 
in much the same way until two, three years ago, we were selling electricity at a loss both to households and to industry in order simply to electrify. I think we've now reached, kicking and screaming in South Africa, we've now reached a point at which the tariffs in electricity have exceeded the costs of electricity and now suddenly there is the prospect of private energy producers being able to come in, feed into the grid and to be able to make a profit. If the state had not, for example, maintained a, 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 a hold over ESCOM, we would not have reached a stage where we can do that. And I think in much the same way, that's the, 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 the model for service, um, for delivery of services, even to the, um, to the economy. So I think that um, very clearly, we work from the assumption that there is a role for the state. I think um, Professor Kane Berman is right that we mustn't make it an overweening one. I think it is just the right touch, both in the creative right hand and in the steady left hand, because um, I don't want to use the famous, um, you didn't build that, but there's lots of road, rail, port, and other things that I think is needed um, in order to unfetter not only South Africa's economy, but the potential of, of Africa um, as a whole. I think that I wanted to, 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 to respond a little bit more philosophically um, to that question. To answer that, also answer the, that gentleman's question, the banking sector in South Africa has not failed in any way. Uh, what has failed is the state. The banking sector is sitting with between five and, uh, the, the private sector is sitting with between five and 700 billion rand ready to spend. Interest rates in South Africa are lower than they have been in 30 to 35 years. It's possible to mobilize vast amounts of capital internally to fund the estimated four trillion rands worth of development that has to take place. The private sector, whether it's the banking sector or the construction industry, is holding back from doing that because of the excessively inefficient regulatory environment. There is a role for the state in any country. The problem is that in South Africa, the state has become a hindrance as far as development and growth is concerned when it should be facilitating it. Yes, sir. Right here and over there. Uh, right here, first. Thanks. I'm uh, Robert Gross. I was head of leadership development at Standard Bank during 2006 to 2009, and I reported to Jacko Marie, the chief executive. Uh, I'm a white American. Um, we haven't talked at all about racial issues, yet apartheid, which ended in 1994, put 90% of the population in an untenable position as far as participation in leadership of the economy is concerned. I was amazed as I walked around Johannesburg that I was treated just like anybody else. And I walked in many times where I was the only white person around, and I was treated no differently from any other black person or white or colored or, or Indian. So I, it just seems to me that we're missing a point here. South Africa has gone through a transition from a very prejudicial political system to one that's open, even though the ANC is the only party that is uh, in town, so to speak, at the moment. But I think that what I'd like to hear from both of you is a response to the issue that South Africa has dealt successfully. Maybe it's clear that Nelson Mandela deserved the Nobel Prize 
uh, for carrying out a peaceful transition. But black and white today, even without Nelson Mandela, are still operating in a, an environment which is open. I mean, there may be too much state intervention. There may be more corruption than in the United States. But I don't think the United States did so well with the financial crisis of 2008-9 relative to South Africa. South Africa's banks, where I was working, did much better than the American banks. So I'm, I'm not trying to criticize the United States, nor am I trying to say that South Africa's government is operating uh, ideally or perfectly. But geez, you guys are missing the point that this is an amazing transition that's happened only 19 years ago. And what I'd like to see is perhaps a response, uh, Ambassador, to the issue that maybe the ANC, as it's losing its percentage of the total vote, maybe we'll see another party that comes up to challenge them successfully. I mean, we're in a process of, of adaptation to the 21st century. And as you can see, I'm pretty positive about South Africa. I think it's silly to talk about a, a Robert Mugabe type of a, of a possibility. Uh, on the other hand, we can say that maybe the world will end tomorrow. Uh, and so, you know, you can consider that sort of a, of a situation. I just think it's a question of marginally okay. moving more towards Thank you. Uh, open markets. So maybe either Thank you. you could respond to that. Either one of you? I, th no, I, think, I think that, um, no, I'm, I'm very happy that you, that you see the glass half full. Um, because that's how I feel about it. And on a daily basis, we go out into the US and our job is to build courage and to be able to say that the salvation of the US economy lies no longer simply in the traditional partners of Europe, but it has to be Africa. You've got to come in and compete, whether you like the Chinese or not, come and go toe to toe in terms of um, sharing in that prosperity, helping that development and the gateway to it is South Africa. And we've had really great responses to it. I think we've had major investment houses opening. We've just launched the South African US or US South African Business Council um, between the two countries, the Chamber of Commerce being involved, starting with membership from groups like General Electric and Black and Veatch and a range of other people who share that kind of optimism, who don't get caught up in the kind of smoke and mirror politics that I think must necessarily happen. I think that we can see if you're an ANC cadre and you see the percentage going down from two-thirds, 65% um, vote that the ANC had in one election and it's now 62%, as a cadre you say, what's going wrong? But for a country, it's a diversification of the, of the politics. It's a diversification of opinion. And I think that we, we, we know that after a while monocultures begin to become static. And I think that one actually needs, and we certainly need opposition that is far more diverse in its color, in its thinking, in its ability to, 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 to posit those alternatives and not be a throwback um, to the past. I see it as, as fairly positive and part of what I think is the second transition. I think Professor Kane Berman has given us the valuable statistics of housing, of electricity connections, of water connections, and all of schools being built hospitals being built. I think the challenge for the next um, 10 years is not the quantitative results that we've had in the first transition, but the qualitative results. Now that we have the hospitals, now that we have the schools, now that we have um, social security systems up, what do we do within the schools? What's the quality of care in the hospitals? How do we deal with all of 
That really is the positive challenge of the further iteration of this transition. And I think that um, we can sustain it. I think we, we simply need to be able um, to make distinctions between what is a fundamental crisis and what's a necessary debate within our society. Yes, a couple of points. The first is that I agree 100% that race relations at a basic personal level in the country are extremely good. That has been a developing trend since pre-1994. It helped to make 1994 possible, in fact. That's the first point. I agree entirely with the gentleman. The second point is that the country has a 36% unemployment rate and counting. It has the worst education system in Africa by far. When the present generation of skilled whites die out as, or, or go into retirement as is happening at the moment, and their education arises from the privileges they enjoyed under the apartheid system, there is nobody to replace them with because South Africa is neither producing nor importing the skills that it needs to run a modern economy. We are sitting with six million more people out of work than other countries at comparable stages of economic development. And to suggest that we should ignore the overriding factor of 36% unemployment and talk about all the wonderful things that have happened, which is true, but to ignore the negative is simply to bury one's head in the sand. Very quick question from that gentleman. Uh, the, the other one. Uh, okay, let's do two, but very, very quickly, please. Adam Powell from the University of Southern California. I spent part of, spent part of each year in South Africa for more than 20 years. And uh, Professor Ken Berman, your uh, description of corruption, if anything, understates the daily stories that we see. Yet the ANC, as you say, will be overwhelmingly reelected in 2014 and probably in 2019. So if there's going to be, as you said at the beginning of your remarks, an Arab Spring, who would lead that? And wouldn't that be undemocratic? Cool. Thank you very much. And one more behind him. My name is Andrew Ntlapo from the South African Embassy. I have worked in the agricultural business for a long time. I wanted to ask, uh, first, maybe um, it's, it's a comment about... No, no, the, please, no, okay. we're really out of okay. time. The bus has to I, leave. I wanted to ask uh, Professor Kane Berman, as in, uh, do you think deregulation, particularly of the agricultural sector, has helped South Africa thus far, given what the, one of the gentlemen said who came from the alternative energy sector came and, from. And much of the deregulation, presumably, you're referring to post-apartheid deregulation post, post, in the post, Mandela administration. Yes, yes. Deregulation okay. in terms of the sector, in terms uh, of moving end of from single-channel so marketing to deregulation. Thank you. Okay. Deregulation of agriculture is a process that began under the previous regime, um, and it is continued by the ANC, despite a number of pressures for the reintroduction of all kinds of restrictions on the import of chickens from uh, South America, for example. Our agricultural sector remains one of the most efficient anywhere uh, in the world. It is under threat from land, land redistribution policies, which whatever the historical necessity might be for redress, put 
land redistribution for its own sake at the top of the agenda without regard to its impact on food production. That is the risk. The risk is that if we continue with the present policies and the policies that are promised of land reform, we will turn ourselves into a net food importer, which will have all sorts of uh, consequences for our international trade. The other question was? The other question? Uh, where will the opposition come from? The opposition is coming from the media, it's coming from the intelligentsia, it's coming from civil society, it's coming from within the ANC. Some of the most uh, vociferous opponents of corruption are among the ANC's trade union allies, uh, Mr. Zwellenzima Vavi, of whom I'm no great fan for other reasons, is, a, is an outspoken voice against corruption. In uh, return for his troubles, he's now being subjected to some kind of investigation sponsored, one suspects, by the ANC to shut him up. I quoted some people as having said that South Africa was facing an Arab Spring. I never myself stated that I thought we were. South Africa has plenty of safety valves. People can let off steam. We have at least four demonstrations against so-called service delivery failures every single day. Quite a lot of them are violent. Quite a lot of them are suppressed by the police. But the point is that they're an expression of democratic will and culture. They are not suppressed. So I don't think we're going to have an Arab Spring. Thank you very much for, to all of you and to our panel. Please join us for uh, the reception upstairs. Thank you.